You are listening to Rare Voices, the show that reveals the wisest path to a fulfilled life for patients with rare and orphan disorders. Brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. I'm your host, Donovan Quill. Anyone who has invested their time in creating improved outcomes for patients becomes familiar with a kind of balancing act. You must be committed to the science and precision involved in diagnosis and therapy. The research, the development, the trials, and the care plan. You must also be devoted to the art of the therapy, the patient's well-being, the expectations, and the lives impacted. After all, the patients we care for are people. And so anyone who has invested their time in creating actual improved outcomes knows it's a balance. Our guest on this episode of Rare Voices is an example of what happens when science meets art. He is a master at understanding how to balance what seems like two competing ideas. Dave Pennack, CEO of Sale Therapeutics, combines his training as an engineer and systems designer with his passion for serving patients with rare and orphan disorders. Previous to Sale, Dave served as Vice President Commercial Operations at Corset Therapeutics and held roles of increasing responsibility at Genentech. In addition to his experience in biotechnology and pharmaceuticals, Dave has designed and launched devices and has experience in a number of different technologies. As you listen to our conversation, be prepared to be provoked by big questions, the kind that will check your balance and set you on a new course. This new course is one where you will really put the patient first. So Dave, we've known each other for a number of years now. And something that's always been interesting to me is your path to the, to the CEO office um, and, and your, your consistent like entrepreneurial um, mindset and lifestyle. So can you kind of give me a, a little bit of background in, in your words on how, how, you, how it led you to the CEO position and then also um, how you've always enjoyed and looked at things from an entrepreneurial mindset and view? Thanks, Donovan. It's it's great to be here and have a chance to to speak with you today and you know listen to more of your podcast. I always learn something from from hearing uh, from everyone else that you bring on the show. So appreciate the opportunity to, to be here myself. Yeah, my path is a little unusual. I would say probably there's an aspect of of it that's in my blood. So my dad is a salesperson, and my mom's been a consistent entrepreneur throughout her career. And so I've always kind of had a little bit of the the vibe of, hey, I'd, I'd like to be, you know, doing something that's innovating and improving. I'm also from the Midwest. And so I have good sort of work hard, you know, roots and, and, and be loyal to companies and things like that. And that's sort of been, I would say, the balance of my career. Um, but but my path is a little bit unusual. There are some consistent themes through it that I'll, that I'll try and guide back to, because I think at the end of the day, uh, unusual paths sometimes look like people are kind of misdirected in how they land. Um, but I think for me, it was, it was actually really easy for me to kind of anchor back on, on the things that were of interest to me. So in, in what has led me to have a career that I enjoy kind of regardless of the position I was in at any time in my career. Uh, but what I would say is, is, you know, the first thing is I'm an engineer that's kind of first and foremost. And, and the reason I'm an engineer is because I've always been interested in science, math, and building things. And kind of as a kid, mostly what that meant was that I would like, you know, break stuff that was working perfectly well around the house, 
trying to figure it out and my parents would freak out at me. And, you know, eventually I, I found out that, Hey, my, my way to go is to learn how to fix things and I probably better learn how to do that. So, so that's what really led me down, down that I went to uh, Northwestern university. I, I earned a degree in engineering there and I quickly realized uh, particularly being in the Midwest and sort of having, you know, uh, the sort of central Midwest work ethic and background that like what, what it meant to be an engineer was really that you worked in factories and you tried to optimize um, how machines worked or how processes worked or how you made potato chips or, you know, smoke detectors or whatever it was that was being made there. And so um, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time early in my career in in, in factories and and so I, I found out one a factory is like a really wonderful place to work. Um, there's, you know, you're producing things, you're seeing product go out the door. Um, you know, it's probably not super dissimilar from a pharmacy where, you know, you're filling an order for a patient. And I really liked the energy of that and sort of how every day felt different. What I found though, is I spent time making doors, paper, air conditioners, computer chips, um, and, you know, didn't really appreciate any of the products on the other side. Like I didn't love any of the products. And so I think what really struck me was that I wanted to be in, in healthcare because I wanted to make products still, I wanted to be, you know, producing things, but I wanted to make products that, that I saw sort of directly impacting, you know, people. So around that time, when I realized I wanted to do that, I had talked to a few companies and they said, you don't have any experience. You can't be in a medical device company or a drug company or something like that. I decided to go back to graduate school and I took the opportunity there to learn everything I could about healthcare so that, you know, and, and sort of I volunteered at labs where we were doing, you know, research on regenerating ligaments. I did my thesis work at a genome sequencing center. I, I spent a lot of time trying to understand how things worked. Um, and so when I came out, I had the opportunity to kind of pivot into a new set of career um, and, and, and work in the healthcare industry. So I started out at Genentech, uh, which, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area, has, uh, you know, was the first biotech company, which is really cool. And I learned a lot there. Uh, I was in the manufacturing side of the business. I also started a medical device company on the side um, that treats kids with speech disorders. And so, you know, took the opportunity on the nights and weekends to do that and was working, you know, hard during the days at Genentech. And so from there, my roles have changed a ton throughout, you know, my career in healthcare. But I would say, you know, generally they've, they've followed a few central themes. The first is, you know, find the type of work that gets your mind rolling. For me, that's, that's sort of science and solving problems um, in math. Like I, I've always sort of liked that. Um, number two is, you know, work on products that make you feel proud uh, or, you know, you feel like you're making a contribution and like kicking out an iPhone microchip wasn't, wasn't that for me. It's that for a lot of people out there. Um, but for me, it was, it's much more interesting to, you know, identify a way to have a medicine that, that sort of helps people get better and then find a way to help physicians understand how to, how to pick the right patients to try with that medicine and see if they help. And then the last thing is, you know, have a three to five year plan. So, you know, once I finally got into healthcare, um, I was in manufacturing, business development, sales roles, product development, managed care, patient services, yada, yada, and in, in sort of CEO now of a, of a, you know, entrepreneurial enterprise called Sale Therapeutics. But, you know, Donovan, when you and I met, uh, you know, I was working at Corsept and I would come to St. Louis 
um, and uh, you were helping us, you know, improve our, our services to patients and things like that. I, I would, you know, I was in a small organization. I would fly out. That was my responsibility was was to make sure that we were providing patient services and distribution. But I would fly in half a day early and leave half a day late, and I would go to all the clinics around because we didn't have a salesperson in St. Louis. I don't know if you knew this. And so every time mm-hmm. I came, I had like a sales quota too. And so, you know, for me, that's kind of, you know, that's what it's about, right? It's, it's, you know, how do you, how do you connect all these disparate parts of business and, and understand them? So, you know, you have the opportunity to do more and help more people. Oh, that's great. No, I didn't know that. That's a, that's, you know, so you were, you were, you know, an executive doing, doing a sales role because you've, you saw that there was an unmet need there. That's, that's, that's amazing. And you probably got a lot of insight by, by going out and filling that sales quota. Um, yeah, so, yeah. so a, ton, a, lot, a lot more insight than sales. I also realized that <laughs> I'm not the best salesperson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, so, so looking at that and coming from the engineering background and, and getting into pharma, did you have any preconceived notions? I mean, you, you had your plan set up, you knew what you were going to get into, but did you have any preconceived notions going from, you know, the, the production and, and factory work to, going into the healthcare sector and more importantly into, you know, into pharmaceuticals? Yeah. I, you know, I, I was, I'm trying to think of exactly what those were. I, I would say I have a few things. The first is that you, I have a preconceived notion about kind of everything that like, you know, practical solutions work. Right. And, and I think I had a preconceived notion that that was the same in healthcare. And I think unfortunately healthcare is, not as practical as a lot of other industries. And I think you see on the other side, you see sort of um, areas like tech that move so quickly that practical solutions um, have sort of unintended consequences, uh, potentially particularly with like, you know, people's data and all the things that they are talking about uh, uh, now and in everything that's going on. So that, you know, I would say one is I probably assumed that there were things that were a little bit more practical than they are in healthcare. Um, the second is, and I remember this in graduate school, um, that, that someone was trying to, and you've probably seen a similar, uh, uh, meme or something like this, but it's like, you know, the healthcare industry is like, if you wanted to go to dinner, you know, you go to a restaurant and you sit down and you're there with someone else and, you know, they have a different health plan. So you both get different menus with totally different prices, and the server comes out and the server selects what you want and then tells you to pick it up at like a restaurant down the street and you go down the street and you pick it up and then they bill someone else and then sort of, you know, have you pay a tip like 30 days later. And and I was kind of like trying to think about that and it was like, Oh, this is a, you know, this is a messy situation. And so for me, you know, I had spent my entire career to that point, essentially like optimizing factories that have sort of, you know, mathematical rationale for why you have this many machines and how you can improve them to run a little bit faster or whatever the case is. And so to me, like that felt really exciting, right? Because I sort of, I felt like I was, you know, in some of these places that ran really well in my experience, we were sort of, you know, trying to optimize the tip of the spear where, because the machine ran really well. And you kind of hear that that sort of meme I told you about, and you're like, wow, there are real issues here. And there's probably, you know, some practical solutions that can make a really big difference. 
and so for me, that was that was pretty exciting. That was a little bit my preconceived notion coming in. Um, I, I think the things I've found since then is that, you know, one, there are lots of problems that are waiting to be solved and there are lots of practical solutions. And I hope I've contributed to that. But I also kind of see, you know, where there's more opportunities as we go forward. The other thing I would say is um, I've, I've gained a real appreciation for the things that fall between specialties. And, you know, in, in sciences and engineering, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there was one science, it was geology, and that's kind of all anyone knew. And then that branched out into chemistry and physics and all this other stuff. And engineering sort of similar, right? You have mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, biomedical engineering. And, and what you found is that they, they all went really far apart, but then they're all coming back together, right? So someone came up with the idea of a stent for people who have coronary artery disease where you can open up the pipe and the blood flows better and they don't have heart attacks. And then someone else came along and said, hey, if we put like an anti-inflammatory medicine on that stent, then it'll last longer and work better. And so you sort of see this combination of, of what's happening. And I think what's really exciting about rare diseases going forward is most of these patients fall between specialties right? Maybe they have a cardiology problem, sort of and a neurology symptom, you know, and something else. And these, these patients, unfortunately, get kind of passed between the specialties. But science is bringing all of these physicians closer together. And so I, I think if I were to say what my current notion is, is that, you know, th- what falls between the specialties is going to get observed better going forward. And um, I think COVID's only accelerating that. I mean, some of these leading centers that are uh, doing studies on COVID medicines are like the, the primary investigators are like oncologists because they, it's a different mechanism on some downstream impact of COVID. Um, and so I'm hoping that all of this kind of brings, you know, the cardiologist and the endocrinologist and the neurologist all to the same table and you you start to see where patients can benefit from that. So, you know, kind of in, in a long way of saying it, I had a few preconceived notions. And one of them is that there's big problems and there are practical solutions. Um, and the other that I've kind of learned since is I think, I think the, the sort of average doctor in medicine today is starting to have a broader perception of how they can, you know, think about patients individually. And I think that's a good thing. I, absolutely. And I, and I wholeheartedly agree with you that, that, you know, that there is a, a need to look at the solutions that fall between those therapies and, and, you know, the specialists getting together to kind of solve for those, those areas and, and looking at that, um, you know, before I get to, you know, some of the other questions looking at that, um, what, what are some of those, those solutions that you, that you've seen work, throughout your career and you can kind of go back to, you know, your first entree into the rare and orphan world and then, you know, how they, how they really worked through. Um, Cause I know, you, you know, from us working together in the past, we've come up with some of those solutions together and we've looked at some patient populations that we've worked in. So I, I'd like you to, you know, kind of talk about, you know, some of your encounters with certain therapies or in the orphan population, but also attach that to some of the solutions that you felt have been key and that have worked uh, throughout the last few years. Yeah, um, man, there there are, there are so many opportunities and solutions, and, and your team's done a really good job. And I'd, I'd say, um, you know, a lot of things kind of come back to like 
for me, uh, solving the right problem and the problem you intend to solve, right? So, so for example, um, when I think about rare diseases and then I think about um, delivery of medication to people and sort of understanding how these things work, you know, if you have sort of a down the middle need for a medicine that treats hypertension or something like that, or, you know, they've gotten really good at medicines to treat some disorders like ADHD or other, other things of that nature. There's actually like uh, a pretty straightforward path that many physicians can take and, and a pretty straightforward path that, uh, um, that the distribution channels can do where they can become efficient, right? In, in a world where what you're dealing with are a lot of people who have similar symptoms, they look similar, the treatments are similar, then, then you can sort of say, okay, let's, let's identify a channel that works for that. Let's make it really efficient for them to get their refills, really cheap for them to get their medicine, and let's optimize that, right? Because that'll allow more people to have cheaper medicine and better outcomes. If, if you have a, a rare disorder where you're potentially dealing with side effects that are, you know, cardiovascular in nature, central nervous system in nature, and, and sort of may deal with endocrinology or something, that's not the greatest system because what you're going to see are rejections from, uh, from, from challenges there. So I think I think to me, it's like, okay, if you're, if you have a rare disease state that has all these kind of issues that cross, you know, barriers between specialties, then I think you've got to look at it as, as, as a group of people who need to understand exactly what those specialties are, uh, and so, or exactly what those challenges might be. And so from that perspective, what I, have always kind of thought was great about this, the, the, the work that you guys have done is you say, okay, we're going to get a team that understands this one disease. And that's what we did with Cushing syndrome when we worked with you. And that team is going to have people who know how to work with insurance companies. The team's going to have people who know how to work with physician offices. That team's going to have people who know how to work with patients. And that team's going to have a clinician, nurse practitioners, uh, pharmacists, whatever, that know how to understand, you know, if someone says something that kind of triggers you to say, geez, what's going on there? How do we, how do we understand that? That person sort of can help connect the dots for the, for the rest of the group. And they may need to, you know, bring two or three physicians to the table to help someone understand if, if a patient's having a challenge. So I think kind of to summarize what I would say is, you really need to understand what you're solving for. And I think in rare diseases, what you're solving for are sort of the unique attributes that fall between um, the specialties. Because if you tell a neurologist about a metabolic problem, they may just say, go talk to the endocrinologist. But the endocrinologist <laughs> may say, well, that depends. Like they also say their fingers are tingling, right? And so it's really important for someone who's who's understands the disease state irrespective of how they were trained so that they can say, Hey, we need to get all three of us together so we can do the right thing for the patient. And, and to me, you can't automate that, right? That, that is a, that's one of the things that makes rare disease patients and families so frustrated, right? Is, is they keep getting bounced back and forth between places. And so, so you need to understand it and you need to, 
serve it to them in a way that that sort of is central to to what's really going on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I you know, and I, I know there is a place for automation, but there's also a place for that that soul and that human approach to way to take care of things. And I know that's been, you know, something that you've dedicated, you know, your life to and, and making sure that that patient gets taken care of from that personal level. So, um, working with you for so long, I, I you know, I can't stress enough that, um, uh, it's refreshing to have, you know, somebody like you that's, that's looking at that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that some business so, challenges that you, you probably see too, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if you do that well, you grow. And then when you grow, you want to sort of, you know, uh, bring efficiencies, right? And so I think, I think the the companies that really serve patients well in the rare disease space, be it on the patient services side, the pharmacy side, the manufacturer side, like my company, are the ones that that say, no, we're not gonna. There's a we're not gonna make this too efficient because once we do, you know, people suffer. And mm-hmm. so we've got to we've got to find the right balance of you know, ways to deliver what we can help people the most, um, in, in run a business. Yep. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So, and, and looking at, let's take that a step further. Um, you know, and, and you've gone all the way through the, you know, the different, the different positions in sales, marketing, you know, commercial officer, all the way up to CEO. So you've seen pretty much every, every step of the way through your career and you've kind of balanced through a lot of that. When we look at pharma and we look at some folks that are, you know, that are getting to their first product or that have a product on the market and they're looking at their commercialization strategy, what kind of misconceptions do you see that are out there that, that, that people make mistakes on and, and that they could overcome by, you know, maybe not looking at automation too much, but ma- looking at that, that patient, you know, centricity a little bit more, that patient first mentality. So what are some of those misconceptions that you kind of see in the industry that, that people come up against and may not be able to, you know, navigate through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's really interesting. And, and, and it's hard, particularly for small companies because, um, and particularly for public small companies. So I appreciate, you know, my company is not publicly traded. Uh, and, and that I think gives us a little bit more flexibility in a lot of ways because we don't have to deliver sort of a quarterly report to wall street on our progress. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, the reality is that um, if you grow up in historical pharmaceutical kind of commercialization processes, there's a few things that you try and do. Uh, number one is you try and simplify everything. So you try and simplify your messaging to physicians. You try and simplify who it is that you're going to, to talk to about the medicine so that so that when you hire uh, your employees to go out and, and help physicians understand how your medicine works, the types of patients that might be, that they might want to consider to be on it, those types of things, um, that, that you can kind of make it easy for them to understand who the, who the right people are to go talk to. So they aren't wasting a doctor's time. They aren't wasting their own time. Um, and then I, I think the third is sort of, uh, people look to simplify, uh, operational challenges, uh, and so that leads to, to two things that I think are big misconceptions in the rare disease space. One is sort of herd mentality, which is that you're like, well, that company used this distributor. And so I'm going to use that distributor because I know that company is reputable. And that doesn't mean that the patients will get the right service, right? And so you really need to go and, and sort of understand this stuff. 
Um, the, the second thing downstream from that is that um, because the, your goal is to sort of simplify the messaging to a physician, um, if you set that as your goal, then what happens is, is you also typically gloss over some of the important mechanism, how the drug works, side effect profile, things that fall between the specialties. So where what we found um, from all of our experiences at Genentech and at Corsept and, and at sales, when people stop taking medicines that are benefiting them, it typically has to do with a side effect that is sort of either unusual for or scary to their primary treating physician. Right. And so if you, if you don't help a physician who's an endocrinologist understand the importance of a cardiology side effect that's common or something like that, but, but is, is easy to manage and can help the patient, then they're potentially going to be, you know, worried about the patient and the patient might be scared personally uh, in those types of circumstances. And so for, for me, I think, I think particularly when you're talking about rare disorders, it's again, it's like solving the problem that you're solving for. You've got to really understand the patient. You've got to really understand the disease state. You've got to really understand um, what are going to be the, the sort of side effects that challenge uh, physicians' comfort level uh, with, a, with a certain medicine that may be really helping a patient. And, and you've got to help them you know, become aware of those and also give them the resources on you know, how do they find out the right way to treat this, right? Like, do they, do they need a, a peer physician? Do we need experts in a different space? Should they be, you know, contacting just, you know, ref- say, hey, why don't you contact the cardiologist at your center? Um, those types of things. Because to me, that, that's really important. And again, that sort of goes against the grain of optimization often. But in my sort of experience, you, you may have a slightly slower launch, you may have uh, a little bit more challenge uh, getting your patient numbers up earlier because it'll take you longer to help physicians understand how the medicine works, who might be the right person for this medication, who's not the right person, which is just as important, right? But then once those patients are brought on the medicine, they see results and then they stay on it, then you know, you're seeing patients get better, which is the whole reason we're here to do this. Uh, and it sort of reinforces the process of like understanding at an individual level, these patients, particularly those with rare diseases that kind of get bounced around. So, so from my perspective, you know, if it's a rare disorder type of medicine, you know, you really got to fight simplification and, you know, understand you don't want to make it complex either. So you, so you need to understand the areas that are important to get deep and the areas that aren't. Right where, um, where you just don't don't spend your time there. Right, focus on the things that matter, and and that's that's at least sort of my perspective. And patient services matter a lot, a lot, um, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So knowing that our show is called Rare Voices, and you know, looking at I'm using your words here uh, in your second step of uh, of being proud of what you do. What's one of the things that's not said enough or that can be said um, as when it comes to therapies for rare and orphan populations? I, uh, so I think that the cascade that seems to happen 
way too often. It's like in every rare disorder, and we're studying one right now, it's a rare mitochondrial disease called pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency, um, which is a pretty, people call it PDCD uh, for, for obvious reasons, as, as you can probably tell. Um, <laughs> the reality is that um, patients are misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed and misdiagnosed. And so, you know, to me, one of the things that I uh, sort of, if I were to simplify, if you're a, uh, a patient who's diagnosed with a disease and put on a medication, okay, there's sort of three types of reasons you don't respond to that medication. If I were to simplify it, and a lot of doctors would argue with me. One of them is you don't take your medicine and don't take it properly. One of them is you don't do the lifestyle things that are necessary to support success on the medication, right? Like if I have a hip replacement and I don't do my physical therapy, I'm not going to walk better, right? Um, right. And, the, and the third is that you don't have the disease or you have a subset of that disease that is rare, right? So you start to understand we're seeing all, you know, people used to get cancer and now they have sort of certain types of cancer. Now they have certain types of cancer with a, genetic subset. And so I think that is sort of everywhere. Um, and again, it, it sort of puts you back in the position where uh, you get a diagnosis, you're given a medication, the medication fails, you get frustrated, you move to a new doctor, they give you a quick diagnosis based on their understanding. They give you a medication, doesn't work, you move on. And that cycle happens in rare diseases for years and years and years. And many people just never get a result or they get too frustrated or too sick to, to deal with that. So the, kind of the thing that I would say is the thing that everyone can ask and everyone can remember about physicians is physicians are, number one, overworked in almost every instance these days, which is which is a challenge with our healthcare system and we need practical solutions there. N number two is because of that, they, they spend sort of less time thinking about uh, every individual. And so they sort of go for the quick, you know, diagnosis by elimination process, which also all of the artificial intelligence software and stuff built into their algorithms that are that are supporting their care um, and improve things for people who don't have rare diseases, but I think can challenge things for people that do sort of support that. And, and the third is that these people love science, right? They, they love to help people. They dedicated their entire life to it. They studied for years and years and years and years, like no pay um, to, to sort of become the physicians with the expertise they are. And so like, I, I think a great question for anyone is, if they give you a diagnosis, say, what, what else might it be if it's not this? If it's not this, what do you think it would be after that? And if you are given a diagnosis and you try a treatment and it fails, and they say, well, I don't know, or they want to switch medicines, I, I think it's that same question. It's like, what, what else might it be? If it's not this, then what could it be? Because they might think about that. They might sort of help understand, you know, hey, wait a second, am I, you know, might it be a rare disorder that's not super common? That, those types of questions, I think, can help physicians. And I think a lot further than, you know, hey, I read on Wikipedia and I think it's pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency, right? I, I think challenging them to go back on their science to understand what it could be 
to sort of think through all the information that they have outside of this system that guides them towards a diagnosis. I think you'll find most physicians, and particularly the ones that have a relationship with your family, can can do a lot of great work for you if you do that. And we've seen a lot of patients who have been diagnosed properly because they asked questions. And so that, that would be the thing I would encourage, you know, anyone who's not being satisfied with results from, you know, a treatment that they're getting or whatever is, you know, are you taking it properly? Are you doing the things you're supposed to do in addition to it? And then if not, do you really have what they think? And, uh, my, my suspicion is those types of questions can engage physicians in a new way and get you more time and more brain space to help them, you know, think through what's best. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we had, I, as you know, my family has a alpha one antitrypsin deficiency and we've had a lot of those same conversations with physicians and, you know, they, as, as they diagnose alpha one, it's usually diagnosed as COPD first or emphysema first. And you're given a bunch of inhalers and things like that. And you have to ask what else, you know, when, when you don't see your lung function stabilizing, or you don't see your asthma becoming, re- you know, reversible, you start asking like, what else? Um, and then they finally get to that diagnosis of alpha one and you you realize your body's missing a protein, you realize it's genetic, and then you have to start testing family members and looking a little deeper. So I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, having the, you know, I, I agree with you that the physicians are very overworked and, you know, they do try to treat the, uh, the common. So it's, it's asking those questions of your physician and, and engaging with them um, to get to that, that deeper issue. And it goes across the, uh, the board for all orphan and rare disorders. So Dave, you say uh, the third, the third uh, key to success that you've had is to have a three to five year plan. So what's next for you? What's on the horizon? What are you excited about? Um, I, I'm excited about our pipeline. So, you know, we've built a really interesting business um, that's focused in uh, what I would say mostly in spasticity, but physical medicine and rehab uh, type area, as well as some rare and infectious disease uh, areas. And, you know, we took the opportunity to grow those businesses and then invest in in development. So, you know, this uh, PDCD product, I told you about. There's there's no treatment for this disease. There are about 300 patients in the United States. And we're in a phase three study right now. And, you know, we don't know if it'll work. Uh, we're hoping so. And we think there's good reason to believe it will. So really excited about that. That's, you know, in the next couple of years. Um, and then the other thing is is the the team at Sale has really built an, an incredible set of products that are practical. Um, and so, you know, we've thought a lot about things where uh, people know something works, but it has a really bad side effect with it or, or something of that nature. And so we've spent some time saying, geez, if you could do use that without that side effect, might that be a really important advancement in science, even though it's not you know, gene therapy? Uh, and, and the reality is, we think it will. Um, and so we've spent a lot of time trying to work on those things. And, you know, drug development takes a really long time. Uh, so, you know, if I look at my kind of three to five year plan right now, it's it's how do we how do we get these things through the clinic, find out if they work, make sure they're safe and, and then get them out there. You know, and one of the things that I love about being in a small company uh, in particular, a small private company uh, within the healthcare space is, you know, some, someone told me once there are only there are only two products that last like 30 years without changes. One of them's medicine and the other one's like airplanes. 
and like everything else, <laughs> everything else changes a lot faster than that. And so, um, you know, but if you go to a big company, they start to work on the 30 year time frame. And if you go to a small company, you, you know, it, it might be a five year time frame, but it's a lot shorter. And so, you know, we're, we're doing all the work we can, we're pushing things along. And to me, you know, that's really exciting. That's great. That's great. So, so looking at that, how do we learn more about you and how do we learn more about sale? Yeah. So uh, go to salerx.com and you can learn more about our company. And it's, it's the most mispronounced uh, name in, in <laughs> pharmaceuticals. It's S-A-O-L, sale, which is Gaelic for life, which is, which is a pretty cool name. We, you know, we have pretty deep Irish roots. So S-A-O-L-R-X.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, happy to connect with anyone. Um, certainly happy to, if people are having problems that hear about this, that think they, you know, potentially are trying to find something out that might help them. Uh, I'm happy to connect them with folks who, you know, physicians or people in the industry or whatever that might be able to help or into, or patient groups if we're aware of them. Uh, so, so happy to help there. Uh, and you know, I, you know, you can follow us on, on Twitter, et cetera. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dave. And uh, it's been a it's been a pleasure talking with you. I know we talk on a regular basis, but it's been a pleasure at being able to interview you in a little deeper level than our normal conversation. So I thank you so much for joining us here at Rare Voices. No problem. Keep up the good work. Uh, people are depending on it. Thanks, Dave. You've been listening to Rare Voices, brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. If you want to hear more Rare Voices, go to Rare dashvoices.com. There you can learn about our shows, read articles from industry thought leaders, and fill out a form to be a guest on Rare Voices. Again, that's rare-voices.com. I'm Donovan Quill, co-founder of OptimiCare. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to listen for more Rare Voices all around you each and every day. Thank you.